So Matthew chapter 23, sentences 1 to 12. So it says, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honour at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi. For you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of God. Well, good morning and welcome. I'm Jeremy. I'm the lead pastor here at City Light. And great to have you along, whether you're a member here at City Light or, uh, or you're someone just checking us out or who's been invited to check out our Doubt series. Really good to have you with us this morning um, because we are starting a series, as Anna said, called Doubt. We're a community that follow Jesus and Jesus takes the truth seriously. And so because of that, we want to be a community that take the truth seriously. And in order to do that, we need to take doubt seriously as well. And we realize that the now is a time where people are experiencing a lot of doubt and disconnection. Obviously, the pandemic has ruptured uh, a lot of our community time, so we have more time than ever just to kind of sit at home with our own thoughts and either watch Netflix or have an existential crisis or whatever it is. But oftentimes, doubts are, doubts are a little bit like a reef in that when life is busy and full, it, in many ways, the tide kind of covers over it. But as the tide goes out and we find ourselves with a bit more time, they often surface and they need to be dealt with. And so we want to be a community that deals with doubt well. And, um, and if we do, we can, we can see it as a way to grow in maturity and humility as people. But when doubts are not dealt with well, you can either end up in the pitfall of becoming just very cynical and, and sarcastic or the other extreme of being quite fundamentalist. If we don't deal with doubts well... It can lead us to become cynical in terms of just thinking, look, everything's fake, no one's real, you know, no one can be trusted, and really we end up just getting on with life with a certain kind of a, a chip on our shoulder in some ways. And the hard thing about that is you still have to live your life, and so it means in the end that you kind of choose the safest route. I don't want to get suckered by some organization or institution, so I'll just get, get on with the business of work or fun or recreation or whatever needs doing. And doubt can in that way lead us to live somewhat uncourageous lives. But similarly, it can go the other way. Instead of dealing with doubts properly, we can just become very hard-nosed and double down on our beliefs and not really examine them and become very angry and, and fundamentalist. And this too is not the way of Jesus. That's not a growth in humility or understanding. And so we want to actually deal with this properly. And so we're going in on this series on a few of the biggest doubts or things that give people some pause about Jesus and Christianity. Now, I want to be clear that even from this morning, I'm under no illusion that we're going to be able to cover every single angle of every question as we go through this. But I also realize that the doubt can be quite paralyzing and you can just sort of feel stuck in it. And so my hope is that, that these 
mornings as we gather together, we'll just kind of get the ball rolling. We'll be a starting point to start a conversation about this um, and to help us to get unstuck on some of these pretty thorny kind of issues. And the first one that we're biting off this morning is this objection to Christianity. How can I believe when there is so much hypocrisy in the church? And now to be clear, this isn't just one among many equal objections to Christianity. This is the capital O objection. Barna, which is an American research group, did some research into the, the barriers that people had to faith. And by far and away, the number one uh, objection was that Christians are hypocrites. The one thing that united millennials and boomers, see, don't say the church doesn't bring people together. The one thing they could agree on was the fact that the church is full of hypocrites and that that was a major objection to investigating faith. It came out as 72% of people who responded said that this was the biggest issue for them. So this isn't just one among many objections. This is the objection. And it makes sense, doesn't it? It makes sense because in many ways it has so many touch points. I can think of friends uh, who don't particularly have, uh, would say that they have a faith of any kind, but maybe met someone in the workplace who identified as a Christian but turned out to be a pretty dubious business person. Another friend who met someone like that in the workplace then visited his church and felt like the whole church experience just had this kind of a, a money-grubbing kind of feel to it. And all of that just built a kind of sense that there really isn't anything authentic or true in all of this. For others, it might be way more up close and personal. I think of the testimony of uh, the hip-hop artist and poet Jackie Hill Perry, who talks about joining a church when she was 20, and initially joining a church that was a pretty vibrant and young community, where she learned a lot of stuff about her faith and really would say she grew. But she'd say at the same time that in the church she was in, there was a real, there was a streak of what she would call like legalism or kind of just moralism that kind of pervaded church life. She was saying things would be called sin, like if you were on the phone to someone and you didn't bring up Jesus in the conversation, that was idle talk and a matter of sin. Or if you hugged someone of the opposite sex. Or if you, you know, were posting on social media and you didn't post anything about Jesus, this was kind of considered, this was frowned upon or even considered sinful. But she was saying the thing that really rocked her was um, after being in this church for a couple of years, the church was called together for kind of an emergency meeting. And in that meeting, they were told that the pastor had been using the scriptures to sexually manipulate women. And then not only that, but the assistant pastor and him were actually stealing church funds. And she remembers being rocked by this. And she said about it and reflecting on it, and I'm quoting her, she said, how are you trying to make us these holy people when you yourselves are living wicked lives? And so she left not just that church, but the church altogether. She said it felt like church couldn't be trusted, like it couldn't be safe, and so she wanted nothing to do with it. And I wish I could say that that was a unique story, but it's not. That is a pretty common and understandable response to hypocrisy in the church, isn't it? When people turn out to not be who they presented themselves to be, we just want to keep away from them. And so if church in any way in your mind has been associated with hypocrisy, it's of course going to be something that you want to get away from. And so then the question becomes, what could possibly be said this morning that would either establish or re-establish trust? What if how you see and feel about hypocrisy is exactly the same way that Jesus sees 
and experiences hypocrisy. See, we connect with people who see things similarly to us. See, as Lewis once said, that we read to know that we're not alone. And many of us have had that experience. You watch a movie, you hear a song, you read a book that describes an experience that you thought maybe you uniquely had experienced. And to realize that someone else out there feels exactly the same way or experienced the same thing establishes a connection. What if Jesus experienced hypocrisy the way you do? What if he sees it the way that you do? And what if even in seeing and experiencing hypocrisy for what it is, without minimizing it, Jesus sees a way through it to have a deep connection with him and with his people, the church? See, what I want to show you this morning is that if you've experienced hypocrisy and are against it, you are actually in step with the heart of Christ. And this is, this is no exaggeration. We're moving through the Gospel of Matthew at the moment. And Jesus has a bunch of run-ins with hypocrites. And he calls them out at various points in the Gospel. But there is one section right at the end where there is a whole chapter devoted to basically a sermon that Jesus gives about hypocrisy. And I want to read just an excerpt of that, one that Anna read out just before, where Jesus explains his stance on hypocrisy. Look at what he says in Matthew 23. So then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but do not do the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers, and no man, no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. But whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Jesus calls out the leaders of his community at the time. In Jesus' day, very few people had an education or were literate. And so they had to trust religious leaders like scribes or like Pharisees that Jesus is talking about here to explain to them what was in God's word, the Bible. And they had to trust that what they said was accurate. And Jesus is saying, you can't trust these guys. They're hypocrites. Literally, the word hypocrite means actor, someone who's got a mask on. That is, the way they present is not really who they are. And Jesus says, you can't trust these people. They're hypocrites. And he outlines three reasons why they're hypocrites. He says, firstly, they don't practice what they preach. If you've ever found that phrase on the tip of your tongue, just know that it originated with Jesus. This was his original criticism of hypocrites. He's saying... They teach things sometimes from the Bible that are accurate, so listen to that, but don't mimic their lives because there's a complete mismatch between what they say and what they do. They don't practice what they preach. And in Hill Perry's story, this was the case of the church she was at. They were saying one thing from up the front and living lives that were completely in the opposite direction. That's the first criticism that Jesus offers. But then he continues and he says, he gets even madder and says they tie up heavy burdens for people. He says they make up things, rules, that God did not intend for people, almost to make their lives harder. There are people who are sincerely trying to follow God 
And these false religious leaders, these hypocrites, come in and make that even harder to do, even at the same time as completely living a life in the opposite direction. And Jesus is furious about it. He's like, you burden these people. You put extra burdens on their shoulders while you yourselves are not willing to help lift them. They're hypocrites, and Jesus is mad about it. And then he gives a third reason. He says they want status and not service. These leaders were supposed to be in it for the right reasons, to love people and serve God's people, and instead they want prominence and power and position. He says they love sitting in the high seats in the synagogue. They love being seen as teachers and important people, but they don't care about actually serving people. Jesus is saying that leaders, particularly of God's people, should be willing to suffer in order to serve the people, but instead these people are willing to make people suffer in order to serve them. They're in it for status and for power. And you can feel, if you read through the rest of the chapter, you can feel the anger of Jesus rising off the page. As he lists seven times, he says, woe to you, woe to you, woe to you, which is like the modern, way, the modern version would be like, damn you, or curse you. It should be that shocking. Jesus is furious about it. He's angry on behalf of the abused. And so if you feel what Jesus feels here, the anger and injustice is right and good and pure. Jesus is saying this is wrong, and he calls it out in God's people. And he's mad because he's very clear-minded about how authority should be used. Because the truth is, you can't really be mad about the way things shouldn't be unless you're very clear about the way things should be. And here in this passage, Jesus lays out how power and authority and leadership should be used. Look what he says in Matthew 23, 11 to 12. He says, The great among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus says, power is meant for service. The great are meant to be servants. Leaders should be willing to suffer for the people they serve rather than to make people suffer in order to serve them. And Jesus didn't just preach about this. He actually practiced it. When Jesus walked on earth, he associated with people who didn't gain him status but actually lowered his status. He hung out with the marginalized and the poor and the socially ostracized. And not only that, but Jesus was willing to suffer in order to serve. He embodied true greatness. Jesus himself claims that his death was a death to serve people like you and I to bring us back in a relationship with God. As Jesus, who was truly great, was humbled as a leader. And so he says, this is how it's supposed to be. And the truth is, if you, if you hate hypocrisy... It's not really a reason to doubt Jesus because he called out hypocrisy too and he experienced it too. And if you're in a church context where you were told that in order to be a true Christian you had to stay silent about what was genuine hypocrisy, I'm sorry. Because that is not what Jesus said. He was not silent about hypocrisy and he didn't call his church to be silent about it either. Jesus was willing to suffer for his people he was the opposite of hypocrisy. He was willing to die at the hands of hypocrites. And the truth is, if you really want to be mad about hypocrisy, you actually need Jesus. See, if you believe that hypocrisy is wrong, it's because you believe that integrity matters more than hypocrisy and that power should be used to serve and not for selfish gain. 
But where did those beliefs come from? Tom Holland, the historian, not the actor in Spider-Man, although, I mean, he may have a hot take on things as well, but I'd probably, I'd probably lean towards the historian who wrote a book on it. So he himself is not a Christian, but he wrote a book called Dominion about how much Jesus and Christianity have impacted the Western world and our worldview. And he writes that the belief in the West that the strong should not abuse powers of position and that power, comes, uh, that power really should be used to serve others comes not just from Christianity, but from the person of Jesus himself. He writes this in Dominion. He says, In a world that took for granted the hierarchy of human chattels and their owners, this is the world that Jesus was in, he insisted that the distinctions between slave and free were of no account, now that Christ himself had suffered the death of a slave. That Jesus, because he embodied this idea of using power to serve even the weak, because of that, Jesus completely turned upside down the Roman world. These ideas are not somehow innate. They have their origin in Jesus and Christianity. That the way authority and power should be used is to serve others and not to abuse. And that's why politicians in our culture are called ministers or public servants, as it comes from this ethic that leaders are meant to serve. Nietzsche, the German philosopher, argued that the main problem with Christianity was that it would be used by the weak to manipulate the strong. If it is the case that we're the product of blind evolutionary forces, there's no reason to value integrity over deception. In fact, deception and hypocrisy could be described as actually pretty effective adaptations for survival. But if hypocrisy naturally gets under your skin, maybe it's because you were made by a God who is holy and has integrity and uses power to serve rather than abuse. A God who exalts the humble and humbles the exalted. In the end, the issue of hypocrisy in the church should draw us nearer to the heart of God rather than further away. So then the question maybe becomes, well, if Jesus is so good, if Jesus is like this, then how is it that there could be hypocrisy in the church or even so much hypocrisy? Because you might even get to the point where you're like, well, I'm sold on the fact that Jesus is great, but what about the church? Well, there are two things that maybe are affecting our view on this. And the first is this. The truth is that bad news is more marketable than good news. We know that even maybe up to a factor of 10x, that bad news is going to get more traffic than good news. And so, of course, if there's a religious leader who falls in some scandalous way, that is going to be far more newsworthy than old mate who lives down the street and pastored a church for 40 years with doing neither harm nor good. And even the case that when churches actually do good, that it's going to be less newsworthy than when someone falls in scandal. And so in some ways, that may affect our view of how connected hypocrisy is to the church. But the second one might also be this, that, that in a Western culture like ours, and maybe more, maybe more the case in, say, America than Australia, that you can still gain status by connecting yourself with Jesus or the church. And remember, Jesus' criticism of hypocrites was that they wanted status and power rather than to really authentically follow Jesus and to serve people. And so it can still be the case, sadly, that people get into it because they want status or power or something else and can gain it. In countries like Iran or maybe even China, where you could lose your life, let alone status, for following Jesus, hypocrisy there is less of an issue. In fact, it tends to be more the issue that Maybe someone who is working for the government who's informing on people turns out to be a hypocrite. But less of this scandalous kind of headline news 
of a fallen pastor who tried to gain status. And so those things may be affecting it. Because the truth is that the closer you get to Jesus, the further you get from hypocrisy. That the person of Jesus was someone who lived out what he said, who practiced what he preached, who said the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled, and he himself embodied it. And so if you are not a believer, I'll just urge you to take the time to deal with Jesus on his own terms. To know that really hypocrisy is in the end, if it is in the church, it's not there because of Jesus. And to know that the closer you get to Jesus, the further you get from hypocrisy. And so if you wanted to do that, we'd love for you to join us either in person in our gatherings or online, but just to shoot us a message because we're running something called Alpha in a few weeks where you can investigate the claims of Jesus for himself. A person who billions of people over history have said have completely turned their life upside down. And so if that's you, we'd love to hear from you. But it may also be the case that you might be someone who has walked away from church or faith, but you, you still kind of, you hold in some measure that Jesus really is a person of integrity and someone that you want to follow, the Son of God himself. But the problem you have is with the church. And so the question becomes, well, why not just have a private faith? Why can't I look, if, if the church has become so problematic or difficult or in your experience has been somewhere where we've experienced hypocrisy, the solution might seem, well, why, not just, why can't I just be with Jesus? But the truth is that you cannot have a real connection with Jesus without having a real and deep connection with his church. That Jesus, in this same gospel that we're reading from, later says, when you feed one of my people, you actually feed me. When you help one of my people, you actually help me. In the book of Acts, when there is a guy called Paul who is killing Christians, Jesus confronts him and says, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Not only that, but Jesus calls the church his bride. He is so closely connected to it. So if you want a whole relationship with Jesus, you actually can't separate it from a relationship with his church any more than you could be friends or best friends with someone and yet not, with their, and yet not really want anything to do with their spouse. Jesus is that closely connected to his church. Now I want to say that there is one exception to this. And I want to say that if, if your experience of church was traumatic or involved some kind of spiritual or physical abuse, that it's not wise to then just step into a church community again. You'd want that process really to be guided by someone who's got experience, who's trauma-informed by professionals who can walk you through a process. And so I want to make that note and that exception before diving into this. But short of that, Jesus does actually call you to be a part of his church. It's not an optional extra for following him. And the question with this might be, well, isn't, that, isn't this bad design work from Jesus? Why would you, you know, kind of send someone back into a community where they've experienced difficulty or, or hypocrisy? Well, let me just return for a moment to Hill Perry's story. We left off with her leaving the church for about a year and a half, almost two years, and not going to a church anywhere. But later on, she says, by God's grace... I was able to find healing. I was able to find comfort through God's church. She came back to the church through a few faithful and trustworthy friends. And she came to find a faith community with integrity. And she went to a different church community, not the one that she was actually at. And again, I want to caution in some circumstances, particularly where there's been abuse presence, it's not wise to go back into that community. 
by stepping into another community where people were imperfectly but authentically following Jesus, she found genuine healing. She found healing. One of the saddest things about church hurt is that often it removes people from the community where they could find actual deep and real healing. And in a broken world full of sin and brokenness, God can actually use his people to bring about genuine healing. Often when you've been a part of maybe a broken family, experiencing a family that's not broken can be incredibly restorative. And similarly, even with church family. Bessel van der Kerk, who literally wrote the book on trauma, A Body Called the Body Body Keeps Score, wrote, Our capacity to destroy one another is matched by our capacity to heal one another. Restoring relationships and community is central to restoring well-being. God's design for the church is actually good. And so that may be a reason to reconnect with God's people. Because as much as over this talk we've talked about some negative things connected with church, the truth is that the church can actually be amazing. When a church genuinely, imperfectly though authentically, follows Jesus, amazing things happen. I mean, over church history, it was a church that began hospitals and educational institutions and orphanages who were famous for actually caring for the poor and the marginalized. When the church is really following Jesus and doing what he says, amazing things happen. But it's not just in that broad sense. The local little C church can be amazing too. And I think it's the case that there is a deep longing in us to actually be connected to a genuine community. You can see this from our culture. If, you, um, if you're a fan of shows like The Office or Parks and Rec or more recently Ted Lasso, there is kind of a recurrent theme in them. And I'm not talking about, that. I'm not talking about the original Office, the British one, which had an incredibly cynical view of communities at the workplace. In fact, Ricky Gervais, who wrote it, said that the central premise for the show was the idea that you have to spend most of your life around people that you ordinarily, by choice, would not spend any time with. So that's the British Office, really, and they go... Not much good weather over there, so of course that accords with that. But the American office, then into Parks and Rec, and even yeah, more recently Ted Lasso, the theme in those shows is a bunch of weirdos who you wouldn't expect to get on, forming a genuine community who are actually there for each other when it matters. And I think the longing there is to be a part of a real community. Because a real community does involve people who are actually quite different from you being gathered together that we know that community isn't really when you've just curated a a bunch of people who look, sound, and talk the same as you, but when you're in a a bunch of, a a group of people who are genuinely different, but who are really united. See, there can be real heartbreaking hypocrisy in the church, but in God's grace, do you know what it is normally? There's a bunch of weirdos who are there for you when it matters. I know many of you who are watching and have had this experience of church as well that some of your most significant friendships have been among Jesus' people. That as we try to follow Jesus imperfectly but authentically, that amazing things actually happen. That the church is not a bunch of people who pretend to be all moral and great, but who follow a great saviour who died for us in our place and who give us the grace to start pulling us together as a people. And I really think this is what we're missing. There's a report that came out even last week saying that 25% of people in a community like ours, have experienced acute loneliness. We are the most hyper-individualistic society that has ever been, but along with that, we are feeling very disconnected, and maybe even more so over two years of a pandemic. 
The truth is that Jesus has built his church to be a place where community is found in following him. And even when it comes to working out doubts, that the best context in which to do it is in community, not disconnected. That's why Jesus says, ordinarily, if you follow me, you should be with my people as they imperfectly but genuinely try to follow me. And in God's grace, it can be amazing. And so I want to leave you with this thought. As things open up here, as restrictions kind of ease, and as we have the chance to actually gather together, as we kick off two services next week, why not come and see? And maybe you'll meet a bunch of weirdos that are just trying to follow a great saviour. But our hope is that as we open God's word together, you'll see that God is good and his love is seen among his people. And so I'm going to pray now as we finish up that God would be doing a work and that if you are someone who, for whatever reason, has walked away from the church and maybe even Jesus, you might see that God isn't done working in this city and that maybe he's not done working in your life either. I'm going to pray that God would begin a new work in all of us. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you are good, that you love us, that you pour out your grace upon us. I pray that over this series you'd be working through our doubts, that we might come to know you truly and genuinely. I pray for anyone listening in who's been hurt by hypocrisy in the church, that you might bring about a deep and unique work of healing. Father, I pray that you would do this, that you might be glorified in your Father, we pray all of these things for the sake of your holy name. Amen.